And uh, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to Ephesians chapter 6. A young boy was taking food to his brothers at the camp. They had been engaged in a battle with their long-standing enemy. The two armies had drawn up to the battle lines, and the sound of war cries were booming across the valley. And as the boy ran up to his brothers, he saw an astonishing sight. The champion of the enemy's army walked out and stood before them. Well over nine feet tall, wearing body armor of bronze that weighed, in accumulation, a total of 125 pounds, carrying a 14-foot spear, the tip of which alone weighed 15 pounds. This giant, Goliath, stood mocking, defying the people of God and the glory of God. And while everyone... And the Israelite army trembled with fear. Young David, a young boy, would stand and fight. But how could he stand against these kind of odds? What would he wear into battle, you might be asking yourself. Well, that's what Saul, the king, was asking himself. And so he gifted to David his own royal armor. And as David placed it on his shoulders and tried to carry it around, it was clearly too big. And he was not experienced with fighting in this kind of armor. So he shed the armor, he threw it aside, and instead he took his staff, he grabbed a slingshot and five smooth stones. But maybe contrary to what you have believed in the past, it wasn't the staff and it certainly wasn't the slingshot or stones that were the key to victory for David. David was victorious that that day because of one thing. In fact, David tells us exactly what it is in 1 Samuel 17, 45. Here's what David says to the Philistine Goliath. He says, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts whom you have defied. David knew his strength was not in weapons of man. David knew what Paul knew and what every faithful saint throughout Scripture knew and understood, that their strength, their might, the armor that they fought with was none other than God himself. It's not what he brought with him, but who went before him. And we've been going through a series called Battle Ready, being reminded by the Apostle Paul that we fight in a battle today, right now. All the world is caught up in a war. It's a spiritual war. And we fight an enemy far more terrifying than Goliath, far greater, far more powerful, far more strategic. But we have been given the same resources that David and the saints of old were given, the armor of God. The armor that God himself wears, as we saw last week, throughout the Old Testament. It is the armor that is God. It is, as Paul says in Romans, the call to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the armor of light. Because we are living in a spiritual battle, we, like David, are called to stand. And if we're going to do that, it requires that we continue to suit up in the armor of God. And that's what Paul has been driving deep into us. So let's look at the text together and refamiliarize ourselves with what we've been looking at the past couple of weeks. We'll begin again at verse 10 just to get the flow of the passage. Paul writes this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. This morning we tackled two more pieces of armor, two pieces of armor that we are required to put on, and here's what we learned first. We need to suit up because the shoes of peace protect against the captivity of Satan. The shoes of peace The armor that God has given us to cover our feet, to wear upon our feet, metaphorically speaking, they protect against the captivity of Satan, against the bondage that Satan wants to hold us in. And Paul describes this as shoes for our feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, shoes are are very important. Many of you already know that, but I'm not talking about making a fashion statement. I'm talking about the functionality of shoes. And soldiers in ancient times, they wore a special kind of shoe, a war boot. It was an open-toed leather boot with a heavily nail-studded sole, which was tied to the ankles and shins with straps. You can kind of think of, in in modern-day terms, like a, a football cleat or a baseball cleat, a very clear spikes sticking out the bottom. And those shoes were essential for every soldier in the ancient world to standing their ground in the midst of a battle. You can imagine being out on the battlefield, perhaps it's raining and muddy, perhaps your enemy is pushing strong against you. The language that Paul uses earlier in this passage reminds us that this is not the kind of warfare that we might think of today where we're shooting long-range missiles or even bullets from afar, but this was a hand-to-hand combat. This was wrestling with the devil That's the kind of combat that they were used to in the ancient world. This was hand-to-hand. And so these shoes are given as as a way of providing traction and preventing the sliding that would occur in those kind of wrestling matches. They gave an advantage over the ill-equipped enemies who would struggle to push back. These shoes described here make it difficult for the enemy to push us back in the spiritual sense. And it sets us up to continue our advance. Now, the metaphorical piece of armor here provides a clear lesson for us spiritually. The gospel of peace makes us immovable in battle. It holds us firm. It allows us to stand strong, to withstand, to resist the onslaught of the enemy. So the question naturally is, well, what exactly is the peace that Paul is talking about? What is the peace that the gospel provides for us? What is the peace that truly provides us with strength and stability? We've been looking, remember, at these pieces of armor, and I mentioned last week that with every piece of armor, there's something to believe and there's something to obey. Every piece of armor gives us an indication of how Satan wants to assault us, the areas in which he wants to attack. It tells us specifically how Satan is operating in in some regards, and at least very generally speaking. But with every piece of armor, if we're going to put it on properly, we need to understand that there's something to be believed and something to be obeyed. Here we see that the thing to be believed 
comes again from the word of God. You see, without Christ, all of humanity is in bondage to a threefold form of evil. In fact, just flip back a page in your Bible, more than likely, to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul has really set the stage for, for the warfare that we're in throughout this entire book. The context is incredibly helpful. But in the familiar passage in Ephesians chapter 2, just watch how Paul masterfully makes us aware of our threefold enemy, the threefold evil that we face. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, listen to this, following the course of this world. There's the world. It's the first great enemy and evil we face. Following, secondly, the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil, the world, the devil, and then finally we see the, the, the flesh in verse 3. He says, and among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is what all of humanity faces. The world, the flesh, and the devil, there are three greatest enemies. Paul is focusing his attention here on the devil and the way in which the devil manipulates the world to attack us. And the way in which Satan tempts us in our flesh, in our areas of weakness and susceptibility to sin. Because of these three enemies, Paul launches, and you can stay in chapter 2 there real quick, look down at verse 12. Where after stating this truth of how we were dead and how we were in bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then listen to this language. For he himself is our peace. What Paul has already made clear in this letter is that though we face these enemies, and in particular this enemy, Satan, and the spiritual battle that we're in, we have received a peace in and through Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel gives us peace first and foremost with God. There's a few different angles that we need to consider this. The first is objective peace with God. Prior to this peace, all of us were enemies of God. There was enmity between us and God. We were alienated from the life of God, from a relationship with God. In fact, we lived in flagrant, willful rebellion against God. There was no peace. There was pure animosity. And our animosity had been storing up against us God's wrath. He wasn't just there sitting passively while we were in our sin. His wrath was accumulating and building against us. There was no peace on either side of this equation. Our sin had not only accumulated God's wrath, it had earned God's wrath. It was the just payment for our sin that we deserved. But we know when we look at the gospel, and this is what Paul is highlighting here, that we have been brought near, that this picture of intimacy, that there is no longer enmity and animosity. Instead, there is relationship and intimacy. We've been brought near to God, those of us who are far off by the blood of Christ, who himself is our peace. Jesus Christ took our sin and placed it upon himself. Romans 5.1 says it like this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of that animosity and enmity disappears as Jesus Christ absorbs the wrath of God as he takes upon himself our sin. 
the cause of chaos between us and God is dealt with in Christ. And you see, these shoes described here make it difficult for the enemy to push back against this kind of peace that we have. If we understand this peace, it anchors us in the battle. We have objective peace with God. So much of Satan's attacks, by the way, aim at destroying this peace that the gospel provides. Not destroying it in the objective sense because it is objectively true. But the second aspect of peace is the subjective nature of peace. That's the experience of peace with God. You know, there are times in our lives where we definitely don't feel like we're at peace with God, right? Our souls are restless. They feel chaotic. And when we consider how we're living in relation to God, there's times in our lives where we feel a great deal of tension and unrest in that relationship. We don't feel the peace that we're supposed to be experiencing that we know to be true. That's what Satan loves to play off of in our lives. He wants to produce disruption in the peace that we're supposed to be experiencing. Experiencing. You see, Satan comes along and says, listen, I want you to, to not live in peace that you have with God, the greatest peace that can be offered to mankind. I want you to live in fear. I, I want your life to be filled with fear, not just fear of God, but fear of circumstances, fear of man. Fear of losing your reputation. Fear of losing your financial resources. Fear of the future. Fear of the past. Fear of condemnation and shame. You know, maybe you, know, you just been going through life and you've just sinned and your life just seems consumed with sin and, and, and Satan wants to convince you, you know what you need to do? You need to go and hide from God, you need to go and hide from God like, like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they had sinned. They were naked and ashamed, so they hid themselves, foolishly trying to hide themselves from God. And here's the truth we must believe when it comes to the gospel of peace in our lives, that we've been reconciled to God, and we can actually run to Him. We don't have to hide from Him. We can run to Him to receive help and grace and mercy and forgiveness in our time of need, which is all the time. The gospel reminds us of this powerful truth that we have objective peace with God. We've been redeemed from the slave market of sin, that our sin no longer has to define us. We no longer have to live under the weight of shame and guilt. We have been liberated from that captivity. And that's exactly what that fear is, what that shame and guilt is. It's holding us captive. It's cutting us off. It's holding us in a prison cell, preventing us from experiencing all the joy that is intended to be experienced in God, all the peace that is offered to us in Christ Jesus. Satan wants to keep us in this state of believing and feeling that we are still in captivity. He wants to push us back into that cell even though the door has been unlocked and flung wide open. What must be believed when it comes to the gospel of peace is that you are no longer an enemy of God. Listen to this, church. This is powerful, powerful ammunition against the assault of Satan. You are no longer an enemy but a friend. You are family, children of God, adopted and loved by the Father. The gospel reminds us of who we are and whose we are. 
And remember, Paul has already anchored our hearts here in Ephesians chapter 1. Let's just listen to verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Amen? This is the truth that gives us peace. And because we are at peace with God in the objective sense, we can experience it in the subjective sense. We can experience personally and truly, no matter, listen, no matter the circumstances of your life, no matter how difficult they may be, how challenging they may appear, how uncertain they may seem, the Bible tells you that you can actually know the peace of God and experience the peace of God in a very intimate way. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. He says, do not be anxious. Again, this goes back to that fear. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So I'm, I'm not experiencing this right now, Ian. I mean, this sounds really great, but I look at my life and, and I have no experience of this. Everything feels chaotic. What's going on? Well, it may simply be, listen, that you are not rooted and grounded in the objective peace that God has provided, that you're not anchored there in your heart and your mind. You're not thinking about that often enough. You're not letting your mind go back there to find rest. But here, let me just give you a couple other reasons why this may be true in, in your life. Um, one of them's negative and one of them, excuse me, both of them are negative actually. The first is this, the presence of sin. The presence of ongoing sin in your life. I mean sin that you've not dealt with before the Lord, sin that you've not come to the Lord with in, in repentance, seeking his, his forgiveness and his grace. The reason why you're not experiencing the subjective peace of God right now in your life could possibly be that right now you are cultivating sin, you are harboring sin, maybe right now you're hiding sin. And that sin in your life has clogged up the flow of peace that you're meant to experience. And that sin comes in a lot of different ways. That sin could be sins of, of commission, things that you are doing and you know you shouldn't be doing, but they could be sins of omission, things that you know you ought to do that you're not doing. It's quite possible that that is the reason why you're not experiencing the peace that God wants you to live in and enjoy in your life. The second reason is this. It's a little bit more serious. Listen, it's that you may not actually have salvation. Like, I've never had this peace. I've never experienced this peace. Or, or maybe, I, maybe I thought I did, but I look at my life and I've never experienced this kind of peace. And I always feel shame and guilt and condemnation. Listen, the truth is it's possible this morning that though you think you may be saved, you may not be saved. And the reason you don't have peace subjectively is because you've never actually been granted the peace objectively by God. And the answer to that is simply the same as the first. It's by coming to God for the first time in repentance. It's by entrusting yourself to him and to his kindness and mercy. It's by looking at the cross of Jesus Christ, the place where our peace was taken care of, was granted to us by turning and placing your faith in him. 
you might still actually be in legitimate spiritual captivity this morning, and God is wanting even this morning to rescue you from that and grant to you objective peace with him, removing all the enmity and all the alienation, and he wants to draw you near in personal, personal intimacy and relationship this morning and grant you not only the objective peace, but the subjective peace that surpasses all understanding. That's to be believed. Now, now, what's the thing to obey? Here's, here's what we need to look at here. You see, we need to live out of this objective peace to proclaim that peace to others. That's part of the implication of the text here. In fact, it's probably the stronger implication of this text. That the acting out of this peace in our life, that, that we can go and proclaim a message of peace to others, having put on the readiness. Did you catch that language there that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 5, as shoes fit for your feet, having put on the readiness. There is a sense there, do you get this, of preparation, of kind of always being prepared, always being ready, you know, as Peter says. Standing firm, remember, that's the whole thread of this text. Four times Paul uses this idea of standing, withstanding, standing firm over and over again. Standing firm is in many ways a defensive posture. But standing firm can also involve offense, carrying the tack, in other words, into enemy territory, plundering Satan's kingdom by announcing the promise of divine rescue to captives in the realm of darkness. This idea, by the way, of advancement and offense when it comes to weaponry and armor is consistent with the use of military imagery elsewhere in Scripture. And, and even where Paul uses this kind of language, Paul speaks of the weapons, again, the spiritual weapons that we fight with in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4. And just, just consider the language that he uses here. You don't have to turn there, just listen to this. He says this, that, that in this warfare, we have been given divinely powerful weapons Listen, to demolish strongholds, that's, that's not passive. That is active offense. To demolish strongholds, listen to what he says, to overthrow arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, every argument, every thought, and Paul there is speaking predominantly of the attacks towards the mind, the attacks of error or ignorance, false teaching. And he, he says we don't just passively take those in, we actively war against them. We overthrow them. We demolish those arguments. And, and here's my point. Listen, here's my point. This is to be obeyed. This involves carrying the attack into enemy territory, which is clearly to adopt an offensive stance. We are called to be soldiers. The idea of readiness or preparation is a call to action, church. There's no way around this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not called to be apathetic. You're not called to simply sit and warm a chair on Sundays in church. That's not the definition of being a Christian. Being a Christian is an active engagement in the mission of God. It is actively pursuing Jesus Christ and his purposes for the world. It is actively pursuing his glory spread across this world through the souls of man. We must be ready, the text tells us, with the gospel of peace because we are called to proclaim the gospel of peace to this world. 
you know, God every once in a while gives me something kind of really close to the sermon that just fits so well, maybe because my mind and my heart are already kind of, kind of soaking in the text and immersed in the text, but here I am writing this message, thinking about this topic on Friday afternoon, you know, just past lunchtime, I'm in the office and I hear this banging on the office door. I go to the door and uh, I open it up and there's this, this guy all bundled up He's actually walked to the door, uh, poor, poor Paul walks to the door, the guy's wearing a balaclava, and, and he's just, you know, like, oh, hit the deck. We have no clue why he's banging on the door, but when somebody walks up to the door with a balaclava on, you're like, yeah. We open the door, and he comes in, he's, he's been out on this long run, of, uh, halfway through a 15-kilometer run, and, is, and he's cramping up, and so he saw the sign, he's like, oh, church, and then he's like, oh, wait, I, I live right where D.A. Wilson is, right by here, and I've seen the signs for the church, and I've often just thought about that, and so I just thought I'd stop in, so he stops in, and we're like, oh, great, and so we're like, well, tell us a bit about yourself, and he starts telling us how about a year ago he has this radical conversion, as he describes it. It's radical conversion to Jesus Christ. And he's talking about it, and it's very kind of ambiguous and vague. And the guy is just super sweet, super kind, um, very humble, really sweet demeanor about him. And he's just so excited and passionate about this conversion story. So, so uh, we say, you know, tell us a little bit about your conversion story. And he starts, he starts kind of talking about it in these kind of ambiguous terms. And so I, I kind of pause him. I said, okay, let me, let me just humor me for a minute. Okay, pretend... I'm an unbeliever right now, and I'm like you a year ago. I was an atheist. I don't know anything about the gospel. In fact, I'm kind of antagonistic towards it, or, or at least I don't care about it. I'm like, pretend I'm you a year ago, and I'm looking at you, and I'm like, I want to have what you have. I want to experience what you're experiencing. What do I do? And he was great. He, he role-played with me for like 15 minutes. I'm like, look, that's what happens when you bang on the office door in the middle of the day, all right? You're subjected to this kind of torture. And we're kind of role-playing back and forth, and, you know, and it's just a little bit, you know, he's like, oh, I just tell you, you know, go on a journey and discover, you know, what you believe, and it'll be great and wonderful. And I'm like, yeah, okay, okay, but, but what do I have to believe? Well, I don't want to tell you that, and, you know, again, just, I, I just, I, I, I don't know, you need to figure that out, what, what, what's, what's kind of best for you kind of a thing, and, and I just, but isn't there something I have to, like, what did you believe? And we go through this long interplay, and, and by the end of it, he looks at me, and I, I, say, I just say, hey, thanks so much. Like, okay, let me cut this, cut this interchange off here, this role play. You know, thank you for humoring me. And he looks at me, he goes, no, 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 this is exactly what I need. And, and he goes, as you were describing things, I was like, yeah, I agree with that. I just don't know how to package it properly yet. I don't know how to communicate. It's all still new for me. I don't know how to communicate this yet. And, and it struck me, listen, how many followers of Jesus Christ are in this position, and they're called to go out and proclaim the gospel of peace, but they don't know what to say. They don't know how to do it. They don't know how to interact with arguments that are coming up against it. And so they can't overthrow them. They can't see the kingdom advance because they're unprepared. Every soldier, every army that is successful, listen, generally speaking, one of the most fundamental principles of winning a war or a battle is preparation, training. In church, you say, well, what does this mean for me? Here's what it means for you. Do you know the gospel? I mean, do you know it? Do you know it inside and out? The thing that you believe, the thing that saved you, do you know it deep into your bones? And can you communicate it? 
Can you tell people what it is that you believe, the truths that the scriptures reveal, the scriptures that saved your life, those truths that saved your life? And, And let's push it another step here. Can you defend it? If somebody was going to push back, if somebody was going to disagree, do you have an adequate enough understanding of the truth to be able to defend it faithfully? I think a lot of us are maybe falling short there. And that's where some of us need the greatest work in our preparation. I'm not talking about being able to counter every single argument because there's lots of smart people out there who will get us into a corner, but I mean with humility and thoughtfulness and care defending the truth that we believe gives peace to others. This passage is linked directly, most scholars agree, to Isaiah 52, verse 7. And Paul is drawing upon this, and understanding this verse helps us understand what Paul is getting at. It's, by the way, Isaiah 52, 7 is the same verse that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 10. And you're probably familiar with this verse. Listen to this. This is how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publish, listen to this, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This text in Isaiah, the context is incredibly important. You see, it pictures the Jewish people returning from captivity It's the whole idea. They're they're in captivity, and here is the return. Finally, as the exiles joyfully traveled over the hills of Zion, they were preceded by heralds who proclaimed to the watchmen that remained in the holy city, your God reigns! Your God reigns! After years in banishment, the decree went forth telling the people that they could be released from bondage. Isaiah helps clarify what Paul is saying to us through this passage in Ephesians chapter 6, that we, we must be a people who strap on the good news of the gospel of peace to march into enemy territory and to announce the good news of liberation to all of those who are trapped in bondage because of sin. That's our job as good soldiers, to not get entangled in civilian affairs, but to faithfully do our duty, do our job with joy, to proclaim him wherever we are and wherever we go. You know, as I was thinking about this text, and again, Paul quotes this text in in Romans. He says, you know, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And it got me thinking a little bit about my feet. You see, I have really ugly feet. Don't judge some of you in here in worse shape than me. But I do, I really, I do. Just physically speaking, I have ugly feet. Like, it's just something I can't get around. I got, like, I broke a bunch of toes, and so I have some weird genetic anomalies with my toes. It's just really gross. I even got a little patches of fur like a hobbit on top. I don't know. It's ugly. Most feet are, right? But you know, our feet can be beautiful, spiritually speaking, metaphorically speaking. Our feet can be beautiful, Listen, if we commit to carrying forth the good news of the gospel of peace to the world around us that is trapped in bondage to sin and Satan, God in his kindness can give us beautiful feet as we carry forth the message of the gospel that sets the captives free. We need to suit up with the shoes of peace to protect against the captivity of Satan in our hearts and in our lives. 
but also so that we can declare it to others so they can experience that peace as well. Secondly, we need to suit up with the shield of faith because the shield of faith protects against the assaults of Satan. And this is a little bit more broad, the idea of the assaults of Satan, because that's implied by the text itself. In all circumstances, you see, this is talking about just in in everything, in every area of life, wherever you find yourself, this is what you're going to need, the shield of faith. We need to take it up, hold it up, the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That the multifaceted attacks... There's a constant need to be prepared, as we talked about last week. Listen, our enemy, uh, he's not sleeping. He's not taking naps. He doesn't get tired or grow weary. He knows his time is short, and so he is on the offensive. He is assaulting us at every turn. He is relentless. And we need to be relentlessly holding up the shield of faith. The Roman soldier was protected by a shield that was large and rectangular, you know, kind of get out of your mind the smaller shields, although those were present during the day, but the, the primary shield that Paul is likely talking about is this Roman shield. It was large and rectangular, about the size of a door. And these soldiers could crouch down and be completely protected, shielded by it from all of the arrows of the enemy common in the ancient world for flaming arrows, which would obviously do great damage, to be shot at these soldiers, especially at the front lines. And so the front lines of the, 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 the battle, all of these soldiers with these giant shields would be held up and everybody would be tucked under as these arrows came fl- uh, flying over towards them. The shield was made of a solid piece of wood And and interestingly, it was covered with a a metal or a heavy oil leather, which would very often snuff out or extinguish the fiery arrows shot by the enemy. They had devised this tactic of, of, you know, the, 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 the shield getting hit and instantly the arrow is extinguished. Throughout the Old Testament, the the term shield was used commonly as a metaphor to describe God's power and protection of his people. In fact, I believe the earliest use of this word shield is in Genesis 15, when the Lord called Abram, he told him, listen to this, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield. But this, this concept is used so broadly in Scripture. Let me just give you a quick sampling, just really quickly. 2 Samuel 22, verse 31 says this, This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. Psalm 18, verse 2 says this, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Lastly, Psalm 33, verse 20 says this, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. It's beautiful imagery, isn't it? This idea of being fully protected by God. With all the the mass shootings going on across the U.S., it just seems like an upsurge, but I I read an article recently about one of the, the latest mass shootings, I believe it was from the one in the the country music um, restaurant 
slash nightclub. And one of the survivors had, had made this statement that the guy who came in was shooting and, and he was very experienced and he knew what he was doing and, and bullets were flying everywhere. And, and everybody was ducking and covering and kind of like dogpiled up like in, into corners and wherever they could to try and, and, and protect themselves from the bullets that were flying towards them. And, and one of the survivors said that some of the men stood up and stood in front of the group of people on the ground with their hands in front of them. And, and this survivor said that these men were willing to take a bullet for any one of them. They were willing to give their life for them. They were willing to be a shield to protect those in need. But you want to know why we can be confident in our shield, Jesus Christ? Because he is truly our shield. He is the one we must hold up. It's because our shield, Jesus Christ, was willing to stand up and take all of the arrows of the evil one, all of the assault of the evil one. He is willing to give his own life to protect you and me. But listen, here's why you can have greater confidence in your shield, Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Christ today, here's, here's the confidence that you have because he was a shield to a much greater danger than Satan. Jesus Christ was our shield from the wrath of God. All of that wrath that had been accumulating because of our enmity with God. Jesus Christ doesn't just protect us from the, the, the fiery darts of Satan. Listen, he protected us from something much, much greater, much more devastating. His eternal wrath that we deserved. Jesus Christ on the cross, he said, pour it out all on me, Father. Dump it out every last drop. And when it says it went dark, listen, the, the, the wrath of God showed up upon Jesus Christ and he drank every last drop and he cried out in agony, listen, agony, but in confidence, Lord, listen, confidence, it is finished. That's the truth to be believed and your shield of faith. But there is nothing that can come against you because Jesus Christ has taken the worst of it already, amen? amen? Our shield is faith, but listen, church, this is really important. It's not faith itself. It's not having faith in faith. It's not faith in, in my confidence, in my abilities. It's not faith itself. It's the object of your faith that matters most. Everybody has faith, by the way. Everybody has faith. Everybody has faith in something. You say, I'm not religious. Sure you are. You believe in something, which, by the way, is the essence of religion. The question is, faith in whom or what? That's the real issue. And this is speaking of our confident trust in God. It's speaking of our confident trust in the gospel. The exercise of faith has been addressed repeatedly in Ephesians. Paul has made it very clear. Ephesians 1, 13, 14, 19, 2, verse 8, 3, 12. But most importantly, I know you wrote those all down really quickly, right? <laughs> Most importantly, listen, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul says it like this. He said that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Listen, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through what, church? Faith. Faith. Faith is the conduit through which we gain divine empowerment and experience a greater measure of the presence of our exalted and victorious Savior. Faith is the means by which God grants to us saving power, saving grace. 
It is the means by which he grants to us sanctifying grace. It's faith in Christ that appropriates salvation and continues to bring ongoing growth in our lives, strength and joy and victory over sin. That's what must be believed. That's the truth to be believed. But here's the truth to be obeyed. And this is at the center of Christianity, that faith is essential for holy living. You cannot live a holy life and not have faith. Here's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6.11. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, so faith propels us into a life of obedience. It is essential. Habakkuk 2.4, right? The righteous shall live by faith. That's twice quoted by Paul, once quoted in Hebrews. It is so vital to understand. The righteous live by faith. We live by faith. You see, the attacks and strategies of Satan are described as arrows. And this, by the way, in the ancient sense, in the Old Testament world, and in the the first century, this was a chilling reality. The imagery was, was incredibly powerful. It conveyed immense danger and terror. Arrows ignited with fire intended to inflict the greatest amount of damage and destruction. And as you just you think about your life and you think about the way that Satan attacks, just consider this for a moment. We all, every one of us, has lusts and desires and passions within us, in our own hearts, that are bent towards sin and that are incredibly easy to ignite. All that is needed is the tiniest flame and we are a roaring fire. And we are assaulted with burning arrows of sensuality and greed and materialism and pleasure and selfishness and anger and on and on and on and on. Satan knows what you struggle with. He knows your tendencies and he will shoot those arrows at you repeatedly just so often because he wants to grip your heart with sin. And oftentimes maybe we find ourselves starting to rationalize the temptations or sin that we've maybe already given way to or were about to give into. Why not, right? Why, why not? Just this one time. Nobody knows. I mean, nobody's going to get hurt by this. In fact, you know what? I deserve this. Why should they have it and not me? I focused on everyone else for so long. Now it's time to focus on me. But you see, when we look to God's word, we see our sins met with truth. We see the selfishness of our hearts. We see the passions and, and lusts of our flesh met with the truth of God's word. And we see there that our sin is an affront against God himself. Not just sin in general, not just that we're all sinners, but specific sin. The specific sins that we give into, the specific sins that we cultivate in our lives, the specific sins that we treasure and we love, those sins. And you can put the name on it right now in your own heart and mind. That, just you need to, that is a specific affront to the glory and grace of God. Because God's going, I paid for that. My son suffered my wrath for that. How can you continue to live in that? I've given you the grace and the resources to overcome that. Isn't that awesome? And yet, yet to our shame. 
to our shame, we're often left failing to make use of the resources that God longs for us to embrace, the armor that God longs for us to put on. He says, in all circumstances, just consider that again, just for a moment in your life. You see, in our lives, we're going to encounter multiple thousands of deadly blazing arrows over the course of your lifetime. Thousands upon myriads upon myriads of blazing arrows coming your way and coming my way. But the answer to every single one of them is faith. We must believe the word of God and obey the word of God. 1 Peter 5 Peter talks again about Satan, and here's what he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Here, here, how? Firm in your faith. You want to resist Satan? You want to make sure he's not getting the best of you? You want to make sure you're not falling into temptation repeatedly? The issue is faith. Standing firm in your faith. Listen to what John says in 1 John 5. Verse 4, he says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it, church? Our faith. See, faith binds us in vital, deep union with God. It pulls us into what is true, and it holds us firmly there. The enemy assaults and says, God's way isn't better for you. God's way isn't good. God's way isn't right. But faith is believing what God says is always better than what Satan offers through sin and selfishness. That's why faith matters. Charles Spurgeon said, faith protects the whole man. While faith will guard the head, speaking of the truth and the error that we combat that with, it will also guard the heart. When temptation to love the world comes in, then faith holds up thoughts of the future and confidence of the reward that awaits the people of God and enables the Christian to esteem the reproach of Christ, greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. And so the heart is protected. I love that. Spurgeon, you know what he does there? He grabs a hold of Hebrews chapter eleven twenty four, which speaks of Moses. Listen to this. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the tre- all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to his reward. He's saying, listen, in the moment of temptation, the moment you're about to, f- to, to fail and fall, you look to Christ and you see that Christ never gave in. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the suffering, he pressed on, and we are the recipients of that kind of endurance, aren't we, church? And so we look, too, in the same way to our reward. We consider the reproach of Christ, listen, all, all of the hardships that we will endure because of Christ. We consider it worth it in the end because we look to the reward. We believe in our hearts that God's way is so much better. It's going to lead to so much more blessing, so much more joy, so much more satisfaction. By faith, we are able to stand firm, but also to go forth, Spurgeon says, still conquering and to conquer in the name of him that has loved us. Say, how? how? How do I do that? How do I have that kind of faith? First, listen, let me just give you this. The simplest way to do this, if you're struggling with having this kind of faith, is simply to go to the Lord in prayer and say, God, help my unbelief. 
just in humility. If that's you today, like, I don't have that kind of faith. I'm, I'm falling and failing and Satan's winning the battle. Listen, go to God right now in this moment and say, God, would you help my unbelief? God, you are faithful. And where I've failed, God, I, I need help. Help to believe your way is better. In the face of sin, I need help to believe it, Lord, deep in my, my soul. Say, so what else can I do? After you've done that, listen, go back and anchor yourself through the word of God, listen, in who God is and what he's done in the past. That's one of the greatest antidotes to fighting doubt and unbelief. You go back to the scriptures and you see who is God. You, know, you want to know why that's so important? Because and people will often ask me, they're going through hardship in their life. They say, why am I going through this? You know what I have to honestly tell people most of the time? I have no idea. I don't know why you're suffering like this. I don't know why your child has run away from the church. I don't know why your child passed away. I don't, I don't have the answers for all of that. Listen, I don't know why, but I know who. I know who. Listen, this is what anchors you in the midst of the storm. God doesn't give us all the answers. If he did, we would have no need for faith. Do you get that? God says, this is who I am. And you know the word of God says, I love this. God is good and he does good things. That's what anchors us. We can trust this God. We can believe he's got our best interest in mind. We can believe he knows what he's doing even when we don't think he does. Go back and remind yourself of who you are in him. And so when Satan strikes, we must choose to look away from ourselves to Jesus, to lay hold of his word and his promises. And when the evil one comes in like a flood, the shield of faith will be our refuge. For the God of our faith is in us, and we are in him.